Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome and thanks for joining me. I just got off the Skype phone to talk with Erica Fox Brindley about her new book, Ancient China and the Yue, Perceptions and Identities on the Southern Frontier, circa 400 BCE to 50 CE. This came out in 2015 with Cambridge University Press. Now, this is a book that simultaneously does at least two different really important kinds of work. At the same time that it brings us into a very specific case study, which is also really, really important um, for anybody who works on China and as remotely interested in, which I think many of us are, issues of selfhood and identity, especially um, when we understand what's happening across the frontier in different periods of Chinese history. Um, And the ways of conceptualizing, naming, and talking about and understanding non-Chinese, what you can sort of, um, in scare quotes, I'm saying that, non-Chinese peoples and Yue peoples in particular. At the same time, it's also offering us um, some much more generally applicable ways of both problematizing some very common ways of understanding China, its histories and its identities, and also much more broadly thinking about the production of, the construction of, the emergence of identity, ethnicity, um, much more broadly. So what Erica does is she focuses in on a particular group of peoples that are named Yue that are local to the southern frontier in early China. Um, it shows us, or the book shows us, the ways that the Huaxia people are, in the words of the book, constructing their own identities vis-a-vis Southern difference. And this focus on the Southern frontier instead of the more kind of commonly focused on North or the Northwestern frontiers is one of many um, important contributions of the study. So over the course of the book, Erica takes us into some important Um, sort of concentrations of kinds of evidence that are going to help us understand the production of Yue identity and the ways that it acts as a foil for the production of um, Huaxia identity and and ideas of centrality. And these include evidence from the field of historical linguistics, from archaeology, um, and from textual study in various different ways. And over the course of the conversation, you'll hear us talk about everything from pre-Austronesian language to magical knives and hairstyles. It's a really fun study as well as being a very comprehensive study of this particular um, area of focus. So it was great fun talking with Erica again. Um, We've had a chance to talk before. I've been lucky enough to talk with her before about her previous book and listeners who are familiar with that conversation and then listen to this one will kind of see or hear the ways in which these projects relate to each other. And by the end of the conversation, um, you'll hear also a little bit more about what's to come and how these fit into a larger project. So um, I'll let you get right to it. Thanks as ever for listening, for your support of the channel, and I hope you enjoy.
I'm here today to talk with Erica Fox Brindley about her new book, Ancient China and the Yue. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, Erica. It's great to have you back on the show. And thanks for writing a book that's so inspiring and that I, I'm personally really excited to talk with you about. So welcome and uh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me again, Carla. Of course. So Erica, since we've already had a chance uh, to talk about what brought you to the field and listeners um, can go to that interview and we'll link to that in the um, write up on the site, let's get right to it and get right into the book and right into the project. So we've talked already about your previous book in a previous conversation. How did you come from that area of research, from that project, to this book? And what brought you to decide to do a, a book-length object on the Yue and problems of identity specifically? Well, I hadn't set out with either of these, uh, the latest two books, um, to actually write books. Um, it was just after I had done my dissertation, I was so sick of the first project and I didn't want to see it. I wanted to put it aside and not think about it for several years. Um, and, and so I, I got busy on just kind of articles and projects that I thought were interesting that I had never really taken up as a, as a graduate student. So this is way back in like, you know, 2001, 2002. And, um, and one of the projects, I mean, actually both Yue projects. They're both, uh, weirdly enough, um, <laughs> on the Yue, but one is music Yue, and the other one is the ancient um, ethnonym uh, Yue, uh, which is what we're talking about today. And um, uh, and for some reason, I was very interested um, in the way people were conceptualizing self. Um, this this kind of goes back to my original uh, interest um, in my first research project um, on I, kind of identity in the self and um, human agency. Um, and so, and then I wanted to, I actually in, in the late 1990s, I had gotten into Southeast Asia and gone to Vietnam. And um, I was really, really interested in learning Vietnamese and um, kind of exploring Southeast Asia as a new kind of uh, frontier of China and um, and slowly, bit by bit, the kind the history of this region because it was so fascinating, and it's I, I'm just in love with not just China but um, most of Southeast Asia as well. Um, it, it, it just grabbed me as well, and I thought, oh my gosh, I am in a very unique position. I I can read um, the classical texts and you know, the histories of these peoples weren't really written in other language. They weren't written in Vietnamese. There was no ancient Vietnamese that they were writing in really early on um, in, in the periods that I, I mostly deal with. Um, and so I thought, wow, I have a, I have unique access to kind of being the person who could try to uncover, you know, at least the historical record um, and try to piece together the connections between China and Southeast Asia, um, you know, early on. And that to me was just a really compelling project. And so I started writing on, um, you know, I just kind of picked out um, what was then to me, the, the, the nomenclature, the, the name that uh, the classical Chinese people had been using to refer to the, the people of the southernmost or at least southeasternmost um, regions. And also it happened to be one that was relevant to Vietnam because Yue is Viet in, um, in, uh, 
in classical Chinese. Um, and so, so I thought, well, that's great. Why don't I try to explore this um, connection and see where I see where I, see where I go with that? Great. So what I'll do is just spend a few minutes kind of laying the foundation so that listeners can um, have an overall sense of the kind of overall scope of the book. And then we'll dive in and kind of get to the particulars and the introduction and beyond. So the preface of the book opens the study by offering a really critical perspective on the way that ethnicities are conceived in China, kind of generally speaking. It pushes back on a couple of ideas and tendencies. It pushes back on the one hand on the idea that Chinese people share the same genetic heritage. And it also asks us to challenge the assumption that, in the words of the book, large, continuous and homogenous was the natural state for China and its peoples. It really wants to ask us to be much more locally and historically situated and pay attention to the kinds of contingencies um, that created and still create in a lot of ways, ways of embodying, identifying and talking about um, kinds of identity. So the book instead looks very closely at, the, at what it calls the mechanics of one's identification with Chinese culture or the mechanics of Chinese identity as it functioned in history. And it does this by focusing on the Huaxia and the peoples associated with its southern frontier. You just mentioned the Yue or the Viet in the pre-imperial and Qin Han period textual corpus and also looks at um, some archaeological um, sort of material and linguistic evidence. Now, ultimately, and, and I'm going to sort of wrap up um, in a moment, the book shows that, in its own words, articulations of the self and, yue, and the Yue other were shaped by specific contextual needs or political exigencies. And it's ultimately going to argue that what it calls an imperial logic of centrality, it, again, in the words of the book, played an important role in the unification of a Huaxia center and self, and hence the construction of marginal others in the process. So that's kind of the foundation for where we are and where we're ultimately going to go. And um, I hope listeners can, um, in hearing that, appreciate uh, one of the things that I really love about the book, which is um, just as much as it is, and at the same time that it's very, very focused on and very carefully focused on uh, a very specific historical case, it offers us ways to think much more broadly, um, well beyond the case of the Yue, um, and even China specifically, um, to really think much more broadly about issues of identity um, and its construction and its sort of local contingencies and local conditions of emergence. Um, so I think uh, it, there's so much to talk about here. So let's get right into it. Um, part one gives us um, a set of orientations, and it's called Orientations, Definitions, and Des Disciplinary Discussions. And we'll talk a little bit about this. You raise a question in the introduction that I'd really love um, for you to kind of open up the project by talking a little bit about here. Here's the question the introduction raises. How does a historian of texts go about investigating a group that left no written record, but nonetheless helped deeply shape the dominant group's self-identity and historical trajectory. So, Erica, if you could, could you talk a little bit about that particular historiographical challenge? How do you go about investigating a group like this that left no texts but were so important for the history that you're trying to understand? Um, that was a question that I was I was grappling with throughout, um, and um, and and so the format of the of the book ended up just 
transforming <laughs> over and over again um, as I as I progressed. Um, originally, I wanted to do something related to cross cultural interactions, and and the more I the deeper I got into this kind of project, uh, the more I realized you know nobody's doing anything, <laughs> not even the bare basics of, of this um, uh, of understanding, like, who were the Yue, and how is this, this? unfortunately, the, the term Yue was constantly changing, and it was so hard to pin down, and so hard to kind of even discuss, even, you know, even mentioning it once, you know, you'd have this qualification in this footnote that would last, like, you know, a half a page, and I was like, I can't write that, you know, I, you know, somebody's got to write a kind of more basic, foundational book that kind of gets all these issues straight, and then, and then we can proceed to, uh, you know, questions of imperial control and reach and all these things that I thought I wanted to do from the very beginning. Um, so, but, but to get back to your question of, of sources, this was just something that just, you know, I realized, well, okay, I, I can deal with these sources, um, but they're all so biased, right? Um, and there were a lot of people throughout this project that were um, they kind of take a more positivistic view of history, like, oh, no, we, we want to know exactly what these people were doing and, and who these people were and not just names and who they're called, what they're called and, and things like that. And I, I, I started resisting that kind of um, approach um, very um, vigorously because I felt like, you know, that's the kind of argument that um, – basically throws the baby out with the bathwater. It's it's like it's like saying, oh, only material evidence, you know, and, and these kinds of social science approaches of linguistics or archaeology, um, that, you know, because we don't want to rely on the texts because they're so biased, then the only truthful um kind of or authentic approach is to is to take this materialistic or linguistic approach. And and I really resisted that, and I and I also resented it. <laughs> um, but I, because I felt like you know we're historians, and historians look at a lot of them, you know, try to use a lot of different materials. But texts are very, very basic, and so surely you know we've been taught uh, most of the, a lot of us to you know to to recognize these biases and, and try to test the limits of these biases in our work and and that's what we do and so I, I was interested in actually um, saying look you know we can't just not look at the historical record because actually even archaeologists do and they use it very uncritically sometimes so historians I felt could add to the conversation um, by bringing their expertise in critical readings and um, basically a, you know a much broader sense of the literary and textual tradition uh, to to start to give everybody and, and, and the whole conversation, you know, people involved in this conversation, insights into um, what the texts are useful for. Um, and I came to the conclusion and partly um, the, the whole project was shaped, the, this whole emphasis on identity and perceptions of identity, that was shaped by what I felt like the historical text could offer us um, in terms of the, the the biggest impact that they could make uh, was to talk about these kinds of self-conceptions and conceptions of the other. Uh, and and that was where we could make the contribution as historians. And so that's kind of how I dealt with that issue, uh, by trying to tailor the actual pursuit and the questions I asked towards 
the the methodological problems of not having of, of having these bias sources. That's right. And one of the things that's really exciting about this part of the book, and, and this part of the book does, um, you know, deal with and in separate chapters, uh, the problems of and the opportunities of working with archaeological evidence and linguistic evidence, and we'll get to that a little bit in a moment, um, but it really does raise these issues as problems to think with rather than bringing them up and then dismissing them or rather than trying to um, just not deal with them head on at all, which would be much less useful, right? So you talk here in chapter one about some of the problems in trying to examine U.S. self-identity or U.S. voice. Like, what could that look like? You know, what might it look like to look at some of the um, sources um, that might gesture towards something like that? And you also make the important point here that there was no single UAP people. The term encompassed very different groups of people depending on who was using it and how and when. But it does help us understand the kind of interconnected histories of the southern frontier. Um, and you talk about in the first chapter the entire South China and Southeast Asia or Oceania uh, region as a kind of macrosphere. Now, this sense of interconnectedness and the importance of interconnectedness comes up really importantly in chapter two, where you're, you're taking us into linguistic research here. It looks at the problem of the spoken language of the people's designated by the term U.S. Um, and you raise a question that we won't get into too many um, details here, but for people um, who are listening who are particularly interested in historical linguistics, um, you raise the question, did they primarily speak pre- or proto-Austronesian, Austro-Asiatic, uh, Hmong Mien, or all of the above? And like, why is that important? And the chapter concludes by suggesting that the uh, majority of the inhabitants of the ancient state of Yue probably spoke a pre-Austronesian language that was related to the various Austronesian languages that developed in Taiwan and possibly southern Fujian. So without needing to necessarily go into all of the details, I mean, the chapter does that and it does it um, quite compellingly. Why is that important? Um, for the larger story you're telling us here, to conclude that about the linguistic um, kind of nature of the spoken languages of the U.S. Well, as part of the uh, general background that I wanted to give uh, so that basically people could get their bearings straight with the U.S., um, I knew that I couldn't only just touch touch on this topic without actually trying to address the question of, well, there were actual Southerners in this area and there were natives and they had very different cultures and languages and material cultures and, and all sorts of and interactions and networks. And, um, and you kind of have to address those issues. That's what I felt that, that, you know, to give a, a larger um, kind of background story, but besides, that uh, what was more interesting to me was the idea that since we're talking about identities um, and identity formation and uh, preservation and kind of uh, the construction and maintenance of it is to me, um, you know, it's ongoing and it's always transforming itself. And 
it happens in the present day and you see these um these identities such as the polynesians and i also have a deep love for hawaii so so this kind of this project drew, drew me into areas of kind of of you know what was this deep history of the polynesian past when they were actually you know what if we took it farther than the starting point which is taiwan which most you know linguists and and archaeologists agree that was the jumping off point for the great polynesian migration well, are we talking with this early history of the Chinese of mainland or East Asian mainland is probably more um, more appropriate. Are we talking uh, basically of an extension of of the histories of peoples who have identities that are really, really relevant to the modern day and not just Vietnam, because Vietnam has this this word Viet in it, but really, you know, thinking very broadly to try to to encompass and recreate um, uh, lines of, of history that I think lots of contemporary peoples um, who identify with Oceania or Polynesian, you know, the Polynesian migrations and the Austronesians who, who were the, that's the linguistic group um, that, you know, turned into kind of the Polynesians um, at some point and, you know, one branch at least. And, um, and, you know, to try to include this area of history and see that the East Asian mainland had a lot going on and that it was a really, really diverse place. And so part of, you know, part of the project was to, to kind of uncover um, that that diversity for everybody. Great. And the next chapter also, we won't talk about this um, in any kind of real detail, but the next chapter also does that work. Um, so just for listeners who are particularly interested in the book's um, explicit engagement, not just with archaeological evidence, because that happens throughout the book, but also with the problem <coughs> of engaging a historiography of archaeological evidence and you know, it, it, trying to figure out how to use that historiography and the evidence itself to tell the story that the book is going to tell. Um, what this chapter does is, um, through uh, a careful look at archaeological evidence, it uses or it, it uses that to identify two main networks of interaction along the southern frontier. So this really just kind of emphasizes and, and buttresses what you've just said. Um, this becomes important, and we can talk about this a little bit later if you'd like, in part because it kind of emphasizes and justifies the use of the Yue as a term to group peoples together um, in the period you're looking at. And we're going to see the kind of ramifications and the textures of that um, in the textual uh, records that you bring us into as we move through the book. Now, there's also a chapter that we're um, also not going to talk too much about. There are a lot of wonderful chapters in this book, listeners. So this is why we're not going to have time to talk about all of them. But I want to make sure that you know that they're there so that when you do go to the book, um, you can see these. There's also a part two. This is a part of the book that looks at the kind of timelines and political histories of the U.S. state and the Han period U.S. kingdoms. And it provides the political background um, for some of the major states in this period that were associated with you have peoples and cultures okay and, and it's really really interesting um, and we'll touch on some of the kind of uh, political history as it plays out in the texts um, in the conversation to come 
Okay, this brings us to part three um, and chapter five. This is super fascinating for all kinds of reasons. Oh, so, great. Yes, um, I love this. Um, so let's get into it. Now, <laughs> chapter five turns us to Chinese texts to see how they treat the issues of identity that are explored um, in other kinds of evidence in previous chapters. And it looks at the various language of the Huaxia self that, as you put it in the book, helps create both Huaxia and Yue identity. And this looks at specifically ethnic, political, and cultural representations of the Yue other. So let's get into the text. You talk here um, about one example that seems really important to the story that you're telling and seems really fascinating for all kinds of reasons. And that's a particular way of conceptualizing um, the self in ethnic terms in the Analects. Um, Mm -hmm. So you talk about the clear ethnic conceptualization of the Chinese self as Huaxia or Zhuxia in the Analects. Can you bring us into that um, and and the importance of that? What's going on in that case? And for you, why is it so crucial for what's happening here? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because to me, in my mind, it is really, really kind of the linchpin upon which uh, most of my arguments are based. Um, And it was really, this was an early piece of work that I had done. That was the first article I came out with uh, dealing with the Yue. And, 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 you know, and so you can see the kind of movement from ancient Chinese texts and intellectual, you know, philosophical texts towards uh, this, this. Um, more this other topic of ethnicity um, in 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 this very pa- um, kind of section, and it was really um, I, I got all involved in well, what is ethnicity? How do scholars define it? How do l- scholars of later China, most of them doing Manchu, you know, Qing history? Because there's been more work on ethnicity with that, uh, but not just them. You know, how how about scholars um, doing classical Greece and and other um, you know other parts of Europe, um, etc. Uh, start working with this idea of ethnicity, and and the one definition I thought was really really useful was this ancient um, scholar, and he's not ancient. He's a scholar of ancient Greece, and his name was Jonathan Hall. And his work on um, Hellenism and, and the ancient Hellenics, you know, and, and his choice of using, you know, the Hel- Hellenists instead of the Greeks, I thought was very, very relevant to China because it's not China back then. It's, you know, it's the Huaxia, it's the Zhuxia. And so so I started um, um, uh, exploring that work a little more. And, and I really liked the way he said, you know, ethnicity, it's not... Um, you know, he he outlined these various positions, like the circumstantialist and the and the constructivist, and uh, um, and 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 so it's obvious that most contemporary scholars don't believe in this kind of like this belief of ethnicity that it's 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 defined by birth. It's it's something constructed within culture, and so I within that uh, kind of within those parameters, um, ethnicity. Um, a good definition that I thought was what he said was, you know, a, a, a group that identifies itself by looking back to the deep past and has a kind of myth of uh, um, a myth of descent or a myth of, of kind of inherited something or other. Um, and that they also 
tend to associate their group with, um, you know, it's kind of this direct lineage or this one line this, that goes back into the deep past. Um, so a myth of descent. It doesn't have to be real, actual descent. Um, and then also associating your group with a particular region um, and geography. And then so there's a spatial component. There's this temporal component. And I was like, well, you know, that we could work with. Um, and so if we if we transpose that to the Chinese case, you know, are these early uh, thinkers talking about ethnicity in those terms. And it became very clear when I looked at Confucius, who was, you know, pretty much one of the first spokesmen of, of, um, uh, talking about the self. I mean, at least the earliest writings, um, in the analects are pretty early. Um, you find evidence that he is, he's really talking about a kind of Huasha and outlining a kind of Huasha or Jusha identity. And what's so interesting and treat and intriguing about that identity is that it's not based on kind of bloodlines or only kinship. I mean, obviously you think of Sha and you think of the, the descendants of the Sha. But the way he defines it is so interesting because it's a kind of cultural notion of the Shah. Um, and so for him, it's not kinship that is really what defines your, um, um, whether you belong to this or this group or not, but that, um, that it, it can be culturally acquired as well. And so you don't have to be born into it. And this, this he shows in so many different spots in the Analects, like he's constantly accepting people from other um, ra- drastically different cultures that he thinks are kind of barbaric, but he thinks that these people have, you know, the will and the way uh, to become civilized. And, um, and he's also talking about, you know, how a jinzi or a gentleman, um, you know, can actually go to one of these cultures and totally transform the culture. And so in that sense, I feel like if we look at Confucius in this light, he becomes almost like an early proselytizer, you know, the civilizing mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not like he says, go out and do this. He says, but he, but he definitely says that if, if this gentleman does go out and, and, and wants to, then, then, then his very presence and the duh that he brings, you know, to the environment, um, is going to help civilize, um, this culture. So it's a kind of culturally constructed notion of ethnicity that I thought was really, really unique and distinctive for China. That's right. And one of the terms that repeatedly came up um, just in your uh, comments just now uh, really highlights something we're going to get back to and something that seems, at least to me from my perspective as one reader, to be just as crucial as um, the yue as a concept that's uh, animating the book. And that's the concept of the self. Um, The book in many ways is just as much about um, the construction of an identity of selfhood as it's about the construction of an identity of yue, right? And the, the two are very, very related. And this comes up really powerfully in this chapter. Now, you make a point here that much of the time that authors that you're looking at are referring to the yue, it's as a way to criticize the self. So for you, why is this important? Um, and what is what do we need to understand about what's happening here um, to kind of uh, understand why this is important to the larger project? Um. That's a great question. Um, it's. I felt that it was really important to show how, in a sense, self-centric <laughs> these writings were. I mean, in, in one way that was revealing their very biases uh, to show that, you know, they these 
these thinkers and these intellectuals, what were they really writing about? Well, they're mentioning the Europe, but it wasn't in the interest of actually uncovering or discovering who these people were. It was about um, kind of using these these um, common stock. Uh, you know, common knowledge or stock, uh, stock phrases or stereotypes or something to, um, to either criticize the, the, the self or sometimes if they were <laughs> more, more Hua Xia centric than, uh, to, to kind of show how, how great they were. But, um, but, but what was, what was interesting in actually exploring the literature, you know, and just kind of looking over what we do have, uh, because so much of the discussion in contemporary scholarship is, is about, oh, the Chinese were so, you know, it was this totally bigoted, uh, view of the world and it was uh, central states, everything and everybody else was barbarian. And, and that's all, that's all good and fine and, and to a large extent true, but, um, I think we overdo it. I mean, I think that at some point you look at the literature and you're realizing that a lot of people were actually critical of their own selves too. And, and what this, this culture meant, especially those that we now associate with the Taoist or, um, you know, these other kinds of philosophies, um, th- these kinds of approaches. Um, they were very interested in looking to other cultures as a means of expressing, you know, either a, a form of cultural relativism or at least, you know, making things a little unstable and uncertain as to how right and wrong you uh, you are, and um, and so so by getting at at the kind of backstory and what these people were doing in their own texts and in their own circles, I felt like we could come to understand the limits of trying to understand factually who these Europe people were because it wasn't talking about, you know, kind of factual Europe people. And, and, and it's, it's very questionable as to whether or not, you know, most of these authors even had, had ever visited or even knew any, any Europe people themselves. Thank you. So as we move from this, Uh, to the next chapter, we move to a chapter that looks at some of the most important physical markers of your identity. It's another really um, super fascinating chapter. So you talk about a a number of physical markers of your identity here that include um, tattooing the body and engraving the forehead. They include sitting in an uncouth manner. They include, (laughs) uh, (laughs) which I I, I love that, you know, reading that you kind of get self-reflexive, like, huh, I do that. Yes, Yes, power to the uncouth. Um, And you also include a kind of trope of pigeon-toed nest to describe the UN and talk about um, kind of where that might come from in terms of um, a hearing of a term or kind of a homophone for a term that might be a more sort of a term of geographical location. But what I want to ask you about um, is hairstyle. Okay, so um, you look at the importance of tropes of unbound hair, sheared hair, and something called a mallet-shaped bun. Now, I I won't ask you to necessarily talk in specifics about this um, unless you want to, um, so feel free. But one of the things that I want to pull out um, uh, that's, I think, of uh, more general import here is the way that you're really beautifully integrating different kinds of source material here um, as a way to tell the story and to try to understand what's happening here. Now, for those of us who work on China, um, a lot of us, um, I think it's safe to say, who work on later periods 
really look to, um, and I'll just say for me, really admire um, scholars of early China um, for the way that you in your work, integrate all kinds of material and textual sources into telling stories, right? Archaeological evidence, tomb remains, um, uh, the texts on various kinds of media, inscriptions um, on various kinds of material objects. These are all uh, texts that are used to tell a story. And this is something that not all of us who work in later periods um, are as comfortable doing. So I think this is really a marker of uh, the real beauty of methodology that tends more to animate um, early Chinese uh, scholarship on early China. And certainly that animates your scholarship here. And this for me was a real moment of, wow. And here's the moment. You point us to the hairstyle of a seated figure in the Zhejiang Provincial Museum um, and ask us to look at the hairstyle of this figure as one possible clue that helps us to understand how these different ways of rhetorically talking about hairstyle um, of the Ye might have made sense and might have fit together. So, Erica, can you talk um, to us about that? Um, and, and you can uh, feel free to talk specifically about kind of what happened with this particular figure in this museum or and or more generally um, the importance of actually working with material objects like this in, in uh, pulling together and interpreting textual um, information and uh, textual sources. Oh, you're so sweet to say that I'm notoriously bad with hair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I did write a chapter on hair because it was so important. Um, it, it became um, something that, you know, you just come across in the in the literature and then all of a sudden you get taken by it because you realize that it's all over the place and it makes no sense. Um, and in particular, what I'm talking about is that um, so it became a, kind of like a... a, a a kind of mystery that I had to solve, you know, like what is going on here? Because um, the authors are just using hair as this designation to, to talk about these Yue peoples. Um, and, but they're using so many different styles and there's no, there's no kind of real um, standardized way. I mean, there, there might be, if you, if, uh, if I were to do some kind of systematic um, statistical study of, you know, how many times this particular thing came up, but I didn't do that. I'm not, I, I, I don't do as well with statistical studies. Um, so, so what I did was I, I looked at these various um, uh, types of hairstyles that were being talked about uh, in relationship to the Yue. And I wanted to, especially in this chapter, get, get past um, the actual, um, um, the, the trope or the designation and try to t contextualize these and see how, how these meanings, what they might mean in a larger context and not just in relationship to the Europe. Um, so in the larger context of Chinese culture, what would these kinds of things mean? What would it mean to sit um, with your, like in the dustpan style with your legs splayed out um, like a, like a, a, basically a dustpan. Um, and what does that mean culturally? And so when you're talking about the Europe peoples who do this, how does that cast them in terms of the cultural um, values uh, that you're working with? And so that was, that was kind of the approach, the, the, the interest that I had in this, in these two chapters, actually, because I, I had to, it got so long that I had to cut it up and, and put um, uh, another part of the physical markers in a different chapter. Uh, but the hair part uh, was about 
you know, how do we understand it when when some people are saying it's short hair and some people are very insistent that it's um, unbound hair? In fact, most of the instances I looked at were, um, you know, tattooed bodies and unbound hair. Um, that was the typical, stereotypical uh, way of referring to uh, the Yura peoples. Um, and so when I came across, so I did this um, this tour in, I think it was 2012 or so, of, of all of southern China. I didn't make it to Vietnam that time, but um, I had some archaeologist friends kind of set set me up with their their friends and and they showed me around the important sites and and I visited some museums on my own just to get a sense of the lay of the land and the and the objects that you know I was talking about um and it was on that trip that I was in this Zhejiang museum and I saw this what turned out to be actually a replica and I didn't know it at the time because they didn't label it properly <laughs> which is so typical of, of uh, Chinese museums or some of them at least um, they just say oh this is this and and so I took a picture and I was so happy to have it and they had this poster with other even more examples of this Yue person seated and you could t- totally you know the body was completely tattooed and they were seated in a very subservient way like it was a servant um, um uh, you know, kneeling, actually, Gui is the kneeling position that was actually ritually um, a part of the Zhou culture. Uh, so they're, they're being used almost like servants in a sense, uh, according to the, uh, the Huaxia cultural norms, but they are totally other fied because they have the tattoos and they have the totally different style of hair. So it ended up being the cover to the book uh, um, because I, I pursued it. I was like, this is such an amazing picture. Um, uh, so I, I contacted the museum and I said, can I, you know, get the rights to the book and we can pay and we can do all this. And, and they were like, we would love to help you, but we don't even actually have the rights to that picture because, or that photo, because it's, the real thing, the real object, uh, we only have the replica and the real object is at this um, cultural, it's the Uyue Cultural Museum of Zhejiang, which was out in the boondocks somewhere um, outside of Shaoxing. And I, I didn't make it to that. And uh, it turns out that this was a part of a staff. And I, I posted on Facebook. So, so I got a lot of good feedback from people um, who had been familiar with these kinds of staffs and their and their purposes in in, in early China, um, and and what happened was that um, uh, I finally got the permission, but but the hairstyle was both at once um, this kind of short hairstyle in the front, kind of very short bangs, um, and then it was also cut in the back, very short, um, kind of up to the top of the neckline. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there were these, um, um, so it was unbound in that sense and short. And then there was all this other stuff going on at the same time, these braids and these little buns. And, and I was just like, wow, I could totally see how somebody um, looking at this, you know, different people um, would come at this at, with different with different ideas like okay some would call it the bun and focus on that aspect but then there's also the short hair and all in one you know it was like wow you know that might be what's happening here or it also might just be that they're they're being totally um, careless with with their way of referring to the other and they don't really know and they're just t- calling upon tropes uh, but it was it was just an interesting way of looking at you know the material evidence and seeing that Wow, you know, it's kind of like the elephant uh, in the room, and people touch on different parts of it, <laughs> and 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 then if you really 
understand what's going on, you could see the whole picture and it all kind of fits together. Awesome. Thank you. So as we move to the next chapter, um, we move to another chapter that also takes us into another aspect of uh, kind of the importance of physical tropes of identity. And this looks at tropes that identified the Yue as, among other things, creatures of the sea. Um, you look at the importance of affiliations with snakes and with dragons. Um, you take us into tropes that identified uh, the South as a disease-ridden land. Um, and you also talk about the importance of tropes of the South as a land of swords and magical knives. It's really, really cool. Now, all of this, I mean, we could spend easily another hour just talking about these super cool, like snakes and knives, right? Like who doesn't- It is really cool. (laughs) Like who doesn't love that, right? Snakes and magical knives and like dragons and the the hair And awesome swimmers and yeah. Totally, like awesome swimmers. And so we're not going to do that. (laughs) Um, But listeners, um, please do uh, look carefully at this chapter because it's awesome in all kinds (laughs) of ways. Um, But what I want to just kind of uh, spend a little bit of time bringing out is one of the really important conceptual points that I think emerges from this chapter and that we've kind of touched on, but maybe not dug into um, in, in a, a really deep way. And so we can maybe start to do that now. Now, you talk about the ways um, in this material that the Huaxia are using these images of the other, right, the magical knives and the disease-ridden lands and the um, snakes to help center and unify their sense of self. So again, this notion of self comes back while simultaneously destabilizing its sense of superiority. So you um, raise here and ask and ask us in the book to really think about this logic of Huaxia centrality. Now, since this has come up in um, in some ways before, and it will come up again in the end of the book, um, let's spend just a little bit of time talking about the importance of centrality here. This logic of Huaxia centrality. Can you talk um, to us a bit about this, and in terms of what you think is so central here? Uh, no pun intended, actually. Sorry. Right. <laughs> well, so I mean, there's it's, this was an this was one of those points that I mean I felt kind of embarrassed making because obviously when you talk about early China, everybody knows that it's the central states and centrality was an absolute, uh, absolutely. It, just critical aspect of of the conception of of these peoples right and there are lots of works that talk about you know even cosmologically speaking um how that centrality was kind of um mapped out in you know the cosmology and the in the way that um you know people dealt with space and you know and material objects and things like that um graves and so so i felt like oh am i saying something new but at the same time um and i don't know if i really got into this as much and maybe i can explore it in the in you know in future uh, projects but at the same time i felt that there was really really something that you know textually speaking there was a kind of assumption of every time you know that you or that the author would bring up you know some kind of comparison um between the self and the other it was always this assumption that the self is where the center is and and so i wanted to kind of 
at some level, I felt like it was a it was a kind of philosophical issue. It was almost like a psychological issue um, that that something very deep is going on with these texts. We see it all the time. And and maybe it's just a normal, natural thing for any author to do. Uh, but really, when they're outlining identity and identity formation, it's um, the, the process is very similar. And it's, it, it involves, um, you know, kind of assuming that everything you know and all of the things that are familiar is the center. And then everything else, you know, as you move out from there and there's this kind of spatial um, thing going on, um, process, uh, spatial processing, it's in your mind even that you're imagining distant things um, or even just um, things that are not as familiar as somehow more distant. And I thought that... um, that was what I was seeing in almost every single case. And that's that's kind of what I started to bring out, I think, in these chapters. But I didn't really, I don't think I explored it as as well as, as I, I could in the future, maybe. Mm. So. Well, thank you. Well, I, I thought you explored it really well. <laughs> so, um, so I really actually like that part of the chapter. Um, but there are two more chapters and a conclusion to go. So let's keep going. Um, chapter eight brings us into a discussion. Well, first of all, it brings us into the fourth uh, major part of the book, which you call performing Yue, political drama, intrigue and armed resistance. And it looks at all of those things. And the eighth chapter brings us into a discussion. Uh, also, again, a really interesting discussion of Yue resistance to the Han Imperium. Now, this chapter draws mainly from the Shiji and the Han Shu accounts of the Southern Yue, among other sources, such as um, a tomb of the king of the Southern Yue, which is really interesting here. Now, the chapter helps us, among other things, re-envision the importance uh, for understanding cultural change of elite aristocratic people on the frontier. And it um, sort of re- Um, focuses the narrative on elite aristocratic people on the frontier because um, in this way it's pushing back against some other scholarship um, that tends to assume that if you're looking for evidence of cultural change, those are not the people that you would look to. And so um, among the many contributions this is making, it's asking us to to really uh, critically look at that assumption and see what we can gain when we look to these people for evidence of um, and to understand cultural change. Now, to meet their own needs, these people that you introduce us to, and um, there are a series of figures, um, some of whom are naming themselves emperors, right? Right. To to meet their own needs, um, you make the point here that they are in the words of the book, adopting and adapting Han imperial tools of control and using them for their own purposes. So in this way, the chapter challenges an idea that the rulers who are identified here went native, right, in in quotes, and instead the chapter suggests that they went sovereign or went imperial. This is really interesting, and uh, could you talk about that for us? Yeah, thanks for for bringing that up. That's also what what I consider to be a, a more important point. You're just like picking all the. <laughs> oh, it's because the book's you, so you, clear. I mean, you have a knack for it. Okay. Well, in any case, um, that uh, well, it makes me happy that you you noticed that because then it means that maybe I did I did convey it yeah. as uh, properly. But um, uh, this idea was, you know, I I was. <sighs> 
I struggled with it a lot because what are these guys doing? They're kind of expats. Um, some of them were not even really Yue, but they were uh, coming from northern China and basically just moving in and and seeing an opportunity and and taking it. And 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 so I think this is really, you know, these last two chapters to me are where I really want to uh, just kind of move on from here because um, I know I'm jumping ahead, but um, um, I, I feel like that's where it's at. You know, if you talk about, um, I mean, this is how you deconstruct a notion of cynicization, uh, that this idea that, Oh yeah, just because in the material culture we see Han things all of a sudden, then that means that translates into an interpretation, a very simplistic interpretation that, oh, they're becoming more Han. Um, and, and that's what, what is this kind of takeover, um, interpretation, like, you know, a cultural conquest, um, that somehow, or even trickle down that it's, it's, it's coming and it's taking over the place. But that kind of effaces the entire history of what's, what's going on among people. And, and when you look at that history and you take this, this, um, take into account, um, the, obviously the, the agency of the subaltern, if you want to use some really contemporary, uh, terms, the agency of the subaltern in relationship to the Imperium <laughs> or, uh, um, in relationship to a dominant culture or something like that, you, you start to real, and it doesn't even have to be a subaltern. Um, in, in many of these cases, as you mentioned, these are people who are very, you know, politically powerful. They are the, they're calling themselves emperors of Southern Yue. Uh, they're defying, um, emperors, uh, you know, the empire to the north. Um, and so they have a lot of agency and, um, and, and what's so interesting is how they, um, you know, the political stuff at the time and all of the situations they find themselves in, um, starts to affect the way that they're, um, kind of wielding, uh, symbols of power and, um, and just basically using whatever they can to, uh, to dominate and, and to be that sovereign. And, and one of the, the, you know, the best methods back in the day was to use this technology of this, of the Imperium and, uh, Imperial technologies that was, it's not Han, it wasn't Qin, but it was, it was a kind of technology that was being developed farther north that they could, basically tap into and go sovereign. And, um, and so all of these, these accounts that talk about them as, you know, they went native or they did this and, and how much of the culture did they absorb or whatever. I felt like that was kind of missing the point because when you look at what's happening, it's about political um, jockeying and, you know, for power and, and positioning yourself in an unfavorable way. Mm-hmm. Now, this um, you mentioned, um, and I think this is really important to highlight um, this point about agency. And you can hear the sirens in the background uh, also highlighting this. This is the universe telling us, yes, agency is really important here. Um, so if you can hear that, I'm sure that is why the police sirens are going off outside. So well right, done. Right, exactly. Um, well done. <laughs> uh, but this point about um, agency and sort of using this analysis um, to try to get at something we might consider to be yet agency also comes up in the last body chapter of the book. And this is a ninth chapter um, that looks specifically at cases of armed resistance um, to the Han Imperium um, and takes, you know, and, and uh, 
takes from these accounts, um, you know, a similar point uh, as the one you've just made about Han agency or about Yue agency rather. Now, can you talk a little bit about how that comes out of these accounts um, insofar as uh, what strikes you as most interesting and important about these accounts of rebellion um, and armed resistance? Um, and here, these include rebellion um, of two sisters, right? So and so, I just want to highlight that also for listeners. We're not just talking about men here. There's a really cool queen dowager in the previous chapter, and there are two really cool sisters who are um, really <laughs> powerful right here. So uh, that's right. So that's important. So I just want to mark that. That's it good. Is. Absolutely. Um, so how does th- this issue of agency come out for you in terms of how you understand what's happening with these accounts of armed resistance? Well, that was something that I was looking for throughout um, the, the, the sources that I had. And um, unfortunately, it's really hard to get at because, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, these are a lot of these sources really don't talk about the Yue voice or they don't really get into what these people they kind of at the, at most they get it cardboard kind of um uh, uh cardboard uh, you know representations of of these people and so um so it really depended on the source for instance the two chong sisters or the jung sisters that became you know basically heroines of early vietnam uh they're they're still in this, the the histories there i mean this is you know Vietnamese people look back to these sisters and say, hey, you know, this shows our fighting spirit. You know, this shows that we were fighting with those Chinese from really early on. And um, um, that that particular case was a little bit disappointing to me because it, there was so little uh, that was actually be, uh, being said about them. And it was all about this great colonialist from the Han, Ma Yuan, who comes in and, you know, defeats them and you know, cuts off their heads and hangs them in the marketplace and, and, and then starts, you know, his civilizing mission. And, and so it was hard to kind of read between the lines and that's what I wanted to do. But there were a few instances where I had enough information where I felt pretty sure that I could piece together a story (laughs) that actually said something about your identity and the formation of it um, uh, during that period. Not, you know, not like Vietnamese, identity a thousand years later where they're looking back to uh, the Chong sisters and, and using that. But really, you know, is there is there an example of how your identity is being used at the time, um, you know, in relationship to by these by these people, by these individual actors um, as a means of kind of fighting back and and forming a sense of group identity because of this resist this this encounter of resistance? Um <laughs> or this military encounter. So that's kind of what I was doing. And it was hard. Uh, these, these sources are not easy uh, to deal with. Um, so I feel like, you know, I, I try my best, but then there's, there's all sorts of limitations. Um, but that, you know, everybody deals with that. So. Yeah. So there's also, as we're kind of coming to the conclusion of our conversation, there's also a conclusion um, in the book that really brings out some of the things that we've talked about. And I won't um, ask you to talk too much about it because we've um, already kind of touched on some of the really important points that come up, but I'll just echo some of them here just to highlight their importance. And um, those include the ways that Hua Xia identity here 
is what you call a function of the logic of centrality. So we've talked a little bit about that. And you also emphasize the ways that um, this analysis shows us and helps us understand that the concept of sinicization um, is really of limited usefulness. And it really pushes back in interesting ways on that concept. So, Erica, there's a ton of material um, in the book that we didn't talk about, right? There's a a lot um, that we could talk more about. But at this point, is there anything in particular or really anything in general um, that didn't yet come up but that you'd like to mention uh, for listeners? Um, Thanks for asking that. I actually do have one more comment that I thought of uh, as I was talking, and um, it, it just... It was this idea that I came to relatively late, um, but it was, it's pretty obvious. And it was that, that, or actually maybe it's not so obvious that, that really when they, when authors were thinking about Huaxia and, and talking about themselves every time they, or not every time, but often when you brought up this other called the Yue, it wasn't just, you know, randomly choosing and other, um, there were specific reasons that were um, that were very relevant to uh, the actual creation of a, of this really really massive concept of huaxia. You know, kind of like this yue was the foil for this massive concept of the huaxia. Um, that was not just you know it wasn't because yue was the south and there was some kind of um, you know uh, directionality going there, but that this was a um, because there are other terms they could have used um, that that I that deal with the south, north, you know, east and west, and, and kind of more schematic terms, but that Huashao Yue relationship was was very unique in that um, it was really a cultural identification, and that they really, really saw Yue as this kind of cultural mega cultural complex uh, that that you know that could help define themselves and and i don't know if i said that right just now but it, there's something there that i think was um really revealing as uh you know as to why huaxia uh, was like the perfect foil for this this mega concept of huaxia that didn't really make sense itself great so I understand um, just from talking to you a little bit before the recording that this is actually part of a larger project. Um, and so as we um, come to our conclusion, um, what are you working on now? Sort of what's next for you? Um, what's currently animating your research and what are you inspired by? Um, well, I'm still interested in this project, actually, because it's just so there's so much you can do with, um, you know, the southern frontier, the history of the southern frontier, moving into different periods, especially periods where there, you know, the histories might yield a little more um, information in terms of the kinds of questions I'm interested in. I'm interested in issues of comparative empires. Like, was there something unique about early Chinese empires that um, that helped? Uh, basically spawn this sense of China as big <laughs> and, you know, imperial and, 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 you know, why did it go the way of China and become this one, this one country in a sense now, instead of going the way of, of Europe, for example, that is all these different tiny little countries um, and um, maintaining their senses of, of identity distinct from each other. And so that that's kind of, you know, why is China so large? Um, the question that, that fundamentally fuels me at this time, and I feel like now that this book is is done, I can kind of move on to 
these higher order questions of uh, imperial control, imperial reach, um, especially, you know, and use the southern frontier and, and this relationship between China and Southeast Asia as a kind of... Um, uh, you know, as the as the data, as a source of, of data for for answering larger questions like that. Well, best of luck with that work. Um, I will look forward to talking with you again about the next book. Let's just keep this going. <laughs> You're so sweet. It, it might be a while, but I'll, I'll do my best. That's thank okay. You. Uh, open invitation and I'll stay tuned. Um, but for the meantime, thank you so much, Erica. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on what I hope is um, obvious um, to me at least and, and hopefully to listeners is a really inspiring book in all kinds of ways. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for, for choosing it to interview. You have been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we will see you next time.